0: One of the foundations of the faith as a Christian is scripture, and I spend a lot of time talking about the reliability of the Bible and the historicity of the different biblical accounts. But another important aspect in trusting and having confidence in your Bible is understanding the origin, where it came from, how books were chosen, how it's been translated. And there are a lot of objections to these sort of questions of the Gospel writers being anonymous or certain Gospels that should be included, like the Gnostic Gospels, the Lost Gospels. Maybe it's translation errors or translation mistakes. Maybe Maybe it's errors in the manuscripts or a recent objection that is coming out lately because of a documentary that's going to be put up on Netflix is that the word homosexuality should not actually be included in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. That is a mistranslation of the original Greek, and that has confused and misled an entire generation. And so there's a lot of issues that are in that area of the origin and transmission translation of the bible and so in today's show i want to talk through these and try to answer some of the difficult challenges against the bible's origin and translation to do that is dr william mount he is coming on to join me he is the president of BiblicalTraining.org, a nonprofit organization that helps provide world-class educational resources to help disciple the local church. He is a former New Testament chair of the ESV Translation Committee and is now on the NIV Translation Committee for the New Testament, Uh, written a a range of books on on biblical Greek grammar. If you're a graduate student and you went through seminary like I did, you probably used his textbook in uh, biblical Greek, as well as this new book that is what we are talking about today, Why I Trust the Bible, Answers to Real Questions and doubts people have about the Bible. So, Dr. Mounce, thank you so much for coming on and having this chat with me today. Thank you. It's good to be here. Um, man, it's it's I, I'm excited because again, like as I, we talked about briefly before, these aren't a lot of questions that I've. I mean, I've dug down into them and I've kind of responded to them, but they're definitely areas that I want to go into more. And I'm just kind of curious, as someone who really has, I mean, you've help translate the ESV and the NIV, you've really gotten into this world. Um, I'm kind of maybe curious to begin with, of how how much do Christians, like when we talk about Greek and we hear people with well, the Greek word this and the Greek word that, like how much deeper is it in an understanding of where the Bible came from and how to translate it to to have the confidence that we have in the Bibles that we have today? Well, are you asking are translations trustworthy? Well, and I guess that we could say just in the beginning, like how trustworthy is the English Bible we have today? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I have a friend on the NIV committee who says that all translations will lead you to the cross. No translation, main translations will lead you into, her, into heresy or error. So, I mean, the yeah, it's not quite the same thing as knowing the Greek and Hebrew, but it's uh, the translations are really good. Uh, they're done by good people, usually by committees. Um, and so, you know, idiosyncrasies are are taken out and stuff. But there's translations are, are that they are translations and there's there's always something that's lost uh, puns are lost or the full meaning of a word is lost or nuances of grammar are lost, and that kind of thing and so i mean greek really does help get through those things especially when it comes to word studies uh, i've seen by this textbook greek for the rest of us and when i'm teaching it the lights just go on in people because they don't have to do all the memory work and learn all that stuff but they can at least figure out what the words mean, and that's kind of a low-hanging fruit.
0: Yeah, and I'm—I guess I, I'm also kind of curious. Of what I was trying to formulate with my question is—is is like I, I feel like in one sense we we have the Word of God, which is amazing and that mm-hmm. it's in our language and to read, but there has to be so much more depth when you understand kind of the, what goes in behind. And so, one I'm kind of curious about is—is is kind of the the confidence that can come into someone's faith knowing. All, a lot more details and the historicity behind how the translation is formed and everything. Do you find that that kind of provides more confidence as people grow in their understanding of how we got our Bibles, not just what the words say?
1: Oh, oh, yeah. I mean, the more you go, I mean, you can't prove anything, but you can, you can have more and more confidence. I tell students uh, you have to have faith in all faith systems, but in Christianity, you don't have to put your brain on a shelf. And so the more you can feed the brain, uh, the, and as long as you internalize it, it's the better. There's a really important quote uh, from Bruce Metzger uh, done in um, uh, Case for Christ, I think it was. And in light of Bart Ehrman stuff, the interv- uh, the author was asking um, Professor Metzger, you know, what about all your study? I mean, your immense study and all the Greek manuscripts. And he goes, oh, it is just strengthened my faith, strengthened it, strengthened it. So, you know, I mean— st- study can puff up. I mean, if you don't do the right thing with it, it's problematic, but I've always, I've just found in my whole life, I've been doing this for, well, I'm 68. So I've been doing it for 50 years now that the more I learn, the more I internalize it, more I process it, the more I trust it.
0: Yeah. Now I'm kind of curious because obviously you can't get into someone's head and know exactly what's going on, but you hear stories of people like, for example, um, uh, and of course, his name just blanked my mind. I should have written it down. But Bart, uh, Ehrman. Bart Ehrman, there we go, of, of studying under Metzger. of And it's because yeah. of textual criticism study that led him away from Christianity. Um, but obviously, you've studied this stuff. You've seen the errors in the manuscripts and the, mm-hmm. and the variations and all this kind of stuff. But you say your faith is more confidence. How can we maybe approach this topic and the difficulties here and allow it to strengthen versus take us away?
1: Well, I mean, who, who knows why anyone moves away from the faith? Right. I mean, there's going to be a multiplicity of reasons, and uh, text criticism may have alerted him to some problems, but I I don't think any one set of issues can lead you really away from Christ. It has to be all tied up with other things going on in your heart. So I I don't think just a pure academic study would produce a, a wayward Christian.
0: So then what would you say to someone who is maybe having this kind of evangelistic conversation with someone else and uh, and they they make the claim like it's because I think the gospel writers or the gospels are anonymous or I heard about the lost right. gospels and and so this is a, a causing me to question my faith. What what can the person say to kind of maybe help guide the person through that questioning?
1: My experience is that most people that ask those kinds of questions that those aren't the real questions in their heart. That's kind of mm-hmm. what I was trying to get at earlier yeah. that, um, I had a friend who disappeared from, I was in college and he just disappeared from, you know, Campus Crusade for Christ and Navigators and all that kind of stuff. And when I finally found them, he's, it was because of canonization, the issue of canon. But I don't believe from one moment that purely the issue of canon is what took him away from his faith. I think there probably were other things going on. So what I recommend to people is that there are some very legitimate things, but you always want to find out what the person's real question is. Hmm. And depending upon the questions they're asking, it's pretty easy to find out what's going on. So for example, some say, well, I just think the gospel of Thomas should be in the Bible. And you just say, really, have you read it? I mean, you have to find it. If, if you want to actually have a discussion, you have to say it nicely. But I mean, that's basically that's the point. You know, you can say, "Well, what is there about the Gospel of Thomas that seems so inviting? What What does it teach you about Jesus, and what does it tell you about his life? And if if, if the answer that well, it tells me something about his life, then they obviously haven't read it because Gospel of Thomas is just a bunch of aphorisms. And, you know, the last one says, Jesus says, in order for Mary to get into heaven, she has to become a man. So it's easy to say, well, if you want the gospel of Thomas in, have you read it? Uh, Oh, I can't believe the Bible because of all the contradictions. Really, could you share the one with me that really bothers you? Most people don't know where the problems are. And so that's why I always want to say, you want to find out what the real issue is. In my experience, the real issue is, is not, contradictions or canon the real issue is the authority of the text and they don't want to submit to it and so they start throwing up smoke screens
0: yeah. So then I'm curious what you would say is like, how important is it? Because obviously you, you've written a book to kind of address these questions that people have, uh, the doubts that we have about the Bible when it comes to mm-hmm. canonizations and, and the contradictions that you have in here. Uh, how important is it for us to be able to answer these questions and address these these issues with maybe they're not kind of yeah. the, key, the key issue here?
1: Well, I, I think it's really important. And I think uh, as culture continues to shift away from uh, Christ, uh, as people like Bart Ehrman keep writing more books, uh, as people in social media and in the, in the press are just leveling their shotguns at us now. It's not going to get better. It's only going to get worse. So I think it, that's, I mean, that's why I took the time to write the book, because it's not a passing fad. In, in the past, there have been passing fads. About every 10 years, somebody comes out with a bestseller going, oh, here's all these books that the early church fathers hid, and blah, blah, blah. And they're always the same ones. You know, it's it's so there have been passing fads, and you sometimes you just need to kind of wait it out. But this is not a passing fad. Yeah, uh, I think this is this is here for the long term, and I think Christians really need to know. They don't have to know everything, uh, and that's why I cross reference other books in my book to say, hey, if you really if you want more on contradictions, go get Blomberg's book. He's going to talk about all of them. Uh, yeah. I'm only going to talk about five or six of them. Yeah, um, but it's a uh, I it's I think it's really important, but it's it's interesting. I mean, I speak a lot on this uh, in churches and in different settings, and especially when I'm talking to parents. I wrote the book for seventeen-year-olds and their parents. That's the, which is an interesting way to try to write a book, uh, because those are two really different demographics. But that's what's happening. Kids are going to school, they're being attacked, and then they're telling the parents they're walking away from the faith, and so. What I have found when I'm talking to the parents, actually the kids too, but mostly the parents, that when they hear the the issue and they get a basic answer, you can just see them kind of relax. Yeah. That, okay, okay, so I understand this is the question and here's the basic answer. And if I want more, I'll go get it. Um, But it's, uh, uh, I don't think you have to know everything in, all of these people's books, but you have to know the basic questions and the basic answers.
0: Right. And that's one thing I like about the book is is that at the kind of end of each chapter, right, you know, as as I'm kind of flipping, as I was looking through and reading, it's like, there's like, hey, for additional resources, right? Because there are, right. you know, this is a really good introduction. Here's some some simple answers, very accessible, uh, for like you said, seventeen year olds and parents, uh, high school students. Um, but then again, there's 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 other issues that you can go into much more in depth if something catches your eye or something is is still yeah. kind of pressing and, and nagging on you. Now, I'm also kind of curious as you've been doing this, as you said, fifty years. Um, are there new discoveries that are creating new challenges as we discover new manuscripts or new new episodes? Evidence or something that creates a new challenge, or is it kind of like it's the same issues that keep coming up that have been answered for the last thirty or forty years? There's not really anything new that's really changing how we view these things.
1: Well, most of the discoveries are uh, affirming the trustworthiness of the Bible. They're not. They're not. We're not finding things that are making us question the Bible. Uh, Bart Ehrman. Uh, came up with some new arguments. He's such a good textual critic that he was able to raise issues that other people in the past haven't. So in some sense, he's been able to bring up some new issues. But, you know, a a good example you mentioned earlier is Are the Gospels Anonymous? Well, um, uh, Simon Kistemacher—not Simon Kistemacher. My good friend Simon Gathergolf, sorry, um, wrote a really good article on the Gospels Aren't Anonymous— and he has really strong evidence that names were always attached to these things. And it's it's not Craig William Lane, it's Craig Evans, uh, actually wrote a really good book on this. And he said that every single manuscript that we have the beginning of has the name of the gospel writer on it. Hmm. So the names are not embedded in the, yeah, this, that's brand new information. Wow. So the, the names aren't embedded in the gospel, but they've always been in the manuscripts. And Martin, I think it was Martin Hengel's work, argued that there, the witness of the early church about the authorship of the four gospels is unanimous that we may not have a ton of evidence those matthew mark luke and john but we have zero evidence that anyone else's name was attached to them and when you talk about the, the expansion of the the meteoric expansion of the church to the far corners of the Roman Empire. And this person over here says the first gospel is written by Matthew. And this person over on the other side of the world says this pers- that Matthew also wrote the first gospel. You can't explain that unless the names were attached to them very, very early. So hmm. I think as a result of those two men's writings that we're going to be able to stop talking about anonymous
0: gospels. They're not anonymous. So you said this is new information. Have we found like uh, new manuscripts yeah. uh, that, that have this on there?
1: Well, I, Simon's research was relatively new. Um, and um, it's just funny. My names are just start going out of my head too. <laughs> um, uh, Craig Evans actually sat down and looked at them all. Wow. And he did the homework and he goes, this is, this is amazing. So I don't know if, I mean, people like Dan Wallace may have known this in the past, but hadn't made a deal out of it, uh, Craig really did make a deal out of it. He okay. did a very good job.
0: Yeah, how I've explained it to my students before is like, you know, this is one of the challenges that tries to discredit the Gospels right from the beginning. And in mm-hmm. our information that we have about Jesus is, I'll tell my students, of like, okay, if I wrote a letter to all of you and I said, dear students, this is what I want you to work on, but I don't sign my name to it, all of you know that I wrote it and you all maybe are talking about that I wrote it, but I never put my name in the document. Uh, right. it, you know, And that's kind of the similar situation is no one's going along saying, well, no, John wrote it. Like all my students are saying, no, Mr. Polly wrote yeah. this letter, even though my name's not in it. Is that a comparable analogy to what we had before this new discovery?
1: Yeah, except that then, you, then to continue your analogy, what happens when your students give their notes to other note students and then those students right. give them to other students and all of a sudden, wait, was this professor A or professor B? I'm not sure. Uh, which right. is why, I mean, the argument is very strong, I think, that because of the unanimity of the witness of the early church, along with Papias is a very reliable person, that you, you just don't have any controversies as to who wrote the four gospels. Hmm. Um, and so, I mean, I think that's a really strong argument.
0: Yeah, I think this is helpful to kind of get out there on, you know, uh, on the, the channel and try to spread the information because it's one of those things where you sometimes talk to scholars and then you hear the, the popular level, you know, Internet blogs and whatnot and what they present yeah. forth. And, and often it's it's arguments that are like, no, that's we, we have evidence against this. is It's not as valid anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So again, we are talking about this book right there. Why should I trust the Bible by William D. Mounts? Um, so kind of going along with this, I think another kind of question that I, I, I like to look more into, cause I think it's deeper. And this is maybe where I was also going. With my first question is deeper than most mm-hmm. Christians understand is the canonization of scripture and the 27 books of the new Testament, yeah. because I, what I want to kind of get to as well is, is there are some books that people have questioned and, and have, you know, there's mm-hmm. like the more accepted <laughs> books and then there's the questioned letters. And most Christians, Christians, maybe you don't know that there's some letters that are questioned or have those kind of reservations maybe. And so uh, how is it that we got the 27 books of our New Testament?
1: Well, I, I need to start by just referencing Michael Kruger's work. I mean, we are blessed to have, I don't know how the president of a seminary has time to write these books, but they are, they are really, really, really good Books And so if uh, your listeners have questions on Canon, uh, Michael Kruger, I think it's michaeljkruger.com. But anyway, his books are, are out there. Um, and he has he has really done his homework. And so that's what's really, really helpful about, about his work. Um, the thing that he, one of the things that he really argues, and I think convincingly, is that you, you have three different definitions of Canon. And the only one that really matters, I think, is when did people recognize the divine authority in the writing and that was instantly Hmm. that if you accepted the divine authorities of what paul said and what peter said and 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 matthew and and uh, john and others then you're going to accept their writings authoritative and so in a very real sense the canon came into existence the minute the biblical writers wrote them because their writings carried their personal authority which they had been given from jesus and so you know it, it, it. I think it is twenty-two of the twenty-seven books. Where there's no evidence that in the first couple of hundred years they were ever questioned. They were accepted. They may, you know, there are people in Corinth that didn't like what Paul said, um, and so they're going to question his a- uh, apostolic call. But uh, the, the church understood that these disciples, these apostles, carried Christ's authority, and therefore Paul can say, "Hey, you don't." you don't agree with me, get out of the church. I mean, you know, Paul Paul was not interested in sharing authority with other people in that sense. So I think that's a really important point to make. And you, I mean, you look at him, there's, what, three basic tests of canonicity. There's uh, apostolicity, who wrote it, was it an apostle, or in Luke's case, a friend of an apostle. And it's fascinating. There's virtually no debate about Luke. Hmm. And he's, he's the one non-apostle in the right. Gospels, right? Right. But... And he's twenty. His two books are twenty seven percent of the New Testament, and there's just not any real question about him in the early writings. So that's mm-hmm. interesting. So it's apostolicity. Who wrote it? So Hebrews had trouble getting into the canon, right? Understandably, because it is truly anonymous. We have not a clue who wrote it. Uh, second is uh, orthodoxy. Does it agree with the teachings? And uh, obviously, if you if you accept Romans right away. You you can't accept the Gospel of Thomas because they're just simply not the same. You, you can't accept Ben Sirach, uh, in the Old Testament apocrypha because he says sin had its beginning with woman. Paul says sin had its beginning with Adam, not Eve. And so I mean you just one of those you can't they both can't be right. One's wrong, right. one's right, one's wrong. And so there's apostolicity, and so that had questions like Jude, who's quoting uh, twice uh, a non-biblical book. Um, in the same way that i might quote you know charles dickens or something it, it's doesn't make charles dickens authoritative if, if i were paul or jude but right. um there, there were some questions about that also it was a very short book uh, so probably didn't get very widespread which is the third test is catholicity is is did the church as a whole accept the authoritative nature of the of the uh, book so the the books that were in question is that John had a little question because the Gnostics used it, but they knew who wrote it, so there, there wasn't a real trouble with John. Uh, Hebrews had trouble because of its authorship. Uh, James had trouble because of its apparent contradiction on justification with Paul, uh, but it was accepted because they knew he was Jesus' brother. Uh, second Peter had trouble because the Greek is so radically different than First Peter. Um, Jude had trouble because most of what he says is in second Peter plus um, it's um, he's, he's quoting non non-biblical sources and it's interesting the revelation was in, in reverse revelation was accepted right away and about the third century I think I've, I was east or west one of the one of the sites of the church started having trouble with it and they um, they questioned it in like the third century, fourth, but then that, that was pretty short lived. So I put, usually people talk about the core of the Canon as a 21 books, but I think because revelation was accepted right away, I, I say there's 22 books in the core Canon. So anyway, that's the, the kind of the once over the issues.
0: Yeah. So how would you then, I mean, if you say the core Canon 22, uh, so you have some books that are kind of questioned, you mentioned those, um, how do they eventually get added in? Like who who is making that final call that says, even though they don't pass some of these tests, uh, one of the tests is, you know, as you mentioned, it has to be written by an apostle or an associate of the apostle. Yeah. We don't know who wrote Hebrew. So why does Hebrews finally get thrown in when it doesn't pass one of those tests?
1: Well, the, the church in the East said that Paul wrote it and it it rolled Paul's coattails into the canon. Okay. Um, so that, that that's how it got in. Uh, you know, you have people like Origin that actually traveled specifically to find out in different churches around the Roman Empire, which books people accepted. And he wasn't determining what books were ex- accepted or not accepted. He wanted to know what the church said. And that's that's a really a big point. The canon wasn't established by Constantine or his mommy. It wasn't established in Nicaea. It wasn't established by a couple of scholars in the corner somewhere. It, it was recognized by the church as a whole. And so you have writings from around the ancient world where people are doing lists or talking about it or quoting. uh, That's a big deal. You have to be careful on the quotes because, you know, again, I could quote Charles Dickens and the Bible, and that doesn't make Charles Dickens as authoritative as the Bible, but you do look at what verses are quoted and stuff like that. So it's, you know, they normally put a date at the end of the fourth century that there was simply no question. Uh, by the middle of the second century, I think there's very, very little question because even in someone like Eusebius's lists, when he lists books as questionable, he's quick to say that doesn't mean I don't accept them. It just means there are some people that wonder. Hmm. And the uh, the tendency was more. Well, what about Clement and what about the Didache? About tendency was more wanting to add more. It wasn't so much to drop them out. Hmm. Uh, that was the nature of the discussion.
0: So I, I wanna to get to Nicaea uh, here in a moment, and you hear about Constantine and Nicaea frequently, uh, but about when would you say, like, do we kind of have a completed canon? Is there a, kind of a year we can point to about when this the church had accepted pretty much the majority of the New Testament canon?
1: Well, I, that's, that's where Kruger argues, there's three different definitions of a canon, and they have three different dates. Okay. Uh, the, the date in which they were written is actually the formation of the true canon, as, as far as he's concerned, as far as I'm concerned. Um, when Peter wrote Second Peter, it still was second Peter's book and it carried his authority. right uh, You get into the middle of the second century before you have this kind of body of literature, a collection of books that the church as a whole said, uh, yeah, these are the ones that we're going to go to when we're trying to figure out what we believe. And it was um, three nine I'm not good on dates three ninety six something like that, where just all discussion ceased. Um, and so it all depends upon. I think I think Cougar calls the first canon the ontological uh, canon, and that's the, the, which is the ones that are inherently authoritative because uh, they carry God's words.
0: Yeah. So then, why then do we see this very common objection that the biblical canon was formulated at the Council of Nicaea? Constantine just picked and chose the books uh, that he wanted in there. Why? why where does this argument coming from?
1: You know, there were locomotives in Egypt during. Uh the Pharaoh's days? Really? Honestly. And I, I can go on and on and talk about it. And eventually it's I'm gonna be so passionate about it, you're gonna go, wow, I didn't know that locomotives were back then. That's why. I mean, if if some people say it enough times and um say it well enough, and that that's Bart Ehrman, or Ehrman, I guess his name is pronounced. He he's a phenomenal debater. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is really, really uh, skilled at communicating, and it it carries force. Um, but if you have people like him, and you have you know p- people in the media making fun of traditional Christians and whatnot, most people just won't check. They just they just they won't check. And the Da Vinci Code was tremendously powerful. Um, he said up front that it was a novel that was fictitious, but yet when he gets to this stuff, he goes, "See, Constantine created the Trinity." Right. And uh, Craig Blomberg told me his daughter came home from university once and she said, Dad, you can't believe what my history professor's doing. He's using the Da Vinci Code as a reliable historical document for the creation of core biblical doctrines. So even though the author says it's fiction, he presents it as fact and people pick it up as fact because they haven't done their homework. Wow. I mean, there is, we have the documents from Nicaea, we, we know what was discussed. It was a relationship of God, the Father, to God, the Son. So in one sense, it was concerning the Trinity, but it, it didn't make up the Trinity. It had nothing to do. Right. Canon was never discussed. Right. And so people say these things because, for whatever reason, and people don't do their homework.
0: Yeah. And yeah, if you
1: believe there are locomotives in Egypt, State, <laughs> I've got some swamp land to sell you—a
0: <laughs> a bridge, a, a bridge to Brooklyn, or something. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I over this last summer, I was on a, I was on one of my trips that I do out to Salt Lake City, Utah, uh, talking with some uh, LDS members, and almost every conversation we got into, they would talk about how the, you know, well, yeah, we know the books of the Bible were chosen at Council of Nicaea. and so we're sitting there on the side of the road, going, why does everyone yeah. think this is what happened? And so this one, uh, one, One guy was walking by us and and one of the members of the group just yelled at him and said, hey, I have a question for you. And the guy's like, what? And he's like, when I say Council of Nicaea, what comes to mind? And he goes, divinity of Jesus. And we went, oh, okay. And like, what about the Bible's canon? He goes, I don't think so. And we're like, let's talk. This is it. I was like, hey, someone. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. Before we kind of change gears here a little bit, uh, one other thing that you said, an objection that I constantly kind of hear of as far as the reliability of the books themselves is is what you mentioned briefly, is, is first and second Peter, the Greek, is very different. And so this leads a lot of people to say, uh, clearly there's a different author, author because if Peter wrote both first and second oh. Peter… The Greek should not be so different from each other. Now, obviously, as, as someone who does not read in biblical Greek, I just read the English and it looks similar to me. And so uh, how is it that someone who has studied this and read the Greek, uh, how do we understand the difference in Greek between these two books, but then believing that Peter wrote both?
1: Yeah, I was just double checking something before I said it. First uh, Peter 5, 2, uh, Sylvanus was his amanuensis. Um, so he had someone who wrote for him and it's very we have Tertius and Romans and stuff so it's it's a very common thing so i I'm, most likely what we have in first Peter is Peter's ideas, Peter's words, things Peter wanted to say, but written down by someone that was a native Greek speaker. It's very good Greek um, I, my guess is just a guess in second Peter it's Peter. And uh, the Greek isn't as good in Second Peter, it's, it's awkward, there's weird breaks and stuff like that. So um, that's kind of what I, what I think is going on. We all know that the amanuenses were given quite a bit of latitude in writing down. Um, there's, I saw the sats the other day of how many times the article te, Tau Epsilon occur in Romans, and it's way out of proportion to Paul's other writings and uh, oh, I know, it was a friend of mine who was arguing that, that Paul couldn't have written Romans, it was tongue in cheek, because there's all these tes in Romans and they're not hardly anywhere else in Paul's writings. Well, maybe Paul's amanuensis liked te as a conjunction. <laughs> so I we know amanu, amanuensis had some freedom in writing, the same way that a trusted administrative assistant would write down what her boss wanted to write or his boss wanted to write. Yeah.
0: So when you are, um, when oh, you oh, are- you, oh yeah, I'm sorry. You are-
1: you, asked, you asked another question. Uh, the reason you can't feel it is translators have, uh, you know, less in the NASB, more in the NIV, tons more in the NLT. Is is the whole role of English style, yeah. and this is this is part of the the issue in translation is. Okay, I see the words. I see what the words mean. How do I say the same thing in English? And do I say it in stilted English so you can maybe see some of the Greek words behind the English? Or do I say it in proper English? Because when you say it in stilted English, it makes it look like the, the gospel writers, for example, are they're nuts. They, can't, they don't know <laughs> how to put a sentence together. And so what you have is you have a smoothing out of the language and... Um, in translation committees, more so when it's an NLT kind of translation where it's really concerned that it'd be proper English.
0: Yeah, well, that was gonna be my next question, is how oh. difficult is it sometimes to be the translator who is trying to smooth out awkward Greek sentences from 2000 years ago?
1: It's uh, That's why we do it in committees. Yeah. And it's why uh, we all have, we have translation philosophies. Uh, when I got on the NIV, it had already been established, so it was really nice. Although I didn't make hardly any suggestions for the first couple of years, because it just took me a long time to figure out what the rhythm of the NIV was, and I didn't want to be making suggestions. I mean, the, the translator's role is to be consistent, yeah, and and that's what we get in these different translations. But they have different they have different values on staying closer to the words or expressing the meaning clearly, or expressing the meaning naturally. And so, but this is, but so you kind of know where the translation fits. And then you, it's kind of like, a, uh, you know, no, no bird falls to the ground without your father. That's all the Greek says. Well, that's not English. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think I, one translation uh... <laughs> says that, and it's not English. But, you know, is it your father's care, your father's knowledge, your father's will? I mean, there, you know, that's where the interpretation comes in. But generally, you actually want it to be an English sentence when you're done.
0: Yeah. And when you are translating, I think, again, a lot of questions come up in translation. You often, I think people confused translation and transmission or, you know, the Bible's been translated so many times. We think that it comes from all these languages, but really these committees are going back to, you often hear the original Greek, original Hebrew. Um, How much work is being done as far as the textual criticism of comparing and contrasting all the different manuscripts of the same passage to first understand what the proper Greek is, then to then put it into the English you're trying to get it into?
1: Uh, The nice thing is the text critics have really done a good job in NA28 and USB 5 are magnificent uh, critical works of looking at the different manuscripts and making decisions. Uh, Tyndale House came out with theirs that Crossway published, and I've done Compare, and they're not that different. So, I mean, uh, it, text critics have worked and worked, and I used to tell my students, either you're a text critic or you have a life. You can't have both. I mean, it's just an all, that's why Dan Wallace is so unusual. Yeah that he is a text critic and he does have a life, but it's an all consuming job. I mean, you have to know Greek so well, and then you have to be able to keep all these different manuscript differences in your head or quick access to them. So that, you know, but there are very few things that all that almost all liberals and almost all conservatives agree on, but they do want that the work that text critics have done their work well. And there just isn't that much question left. I think it's, Dan Wallace estimates that 0.4% of the New Testament is really up for grabs. Yeah. Is it Gergazines or Gadarenes? Bethesda, yeah. I mean, are, are different spellings. Right. Is, are you going to spell John's name with one or two news? Are you going to put a new movable on SD or not? I mean, that's the kind of thing that we're just not sure on, but it, that doesn't affect meaning
0: yeah and so really really the questions come into is the meaning of the text the interpretation of the text what exactly does it right. mean we're not really arguing about the original greek and what that's talking about
1: well let me, let me give you an example this is a real interesting uh, example uh, was when the leper came to jesus in mark one did jesus respond with uh, um, compassion or indignant and the niv has caught a lot of flack for saying indignant uh, because the, the textual the uh, the internal evidence is overwhelmingly strong that that's actually what he said. But who was he indignant at? Was he indignant at the leper, or was he was he just mad that sin had messed up his world? You know. So there's interpretive questions there. Uh, but very early on, the scribes, uh, if that's the original reading, the scribes very early on had trouble and changed it to had deep compassion, which is. Which is what translations go with, because it's really hard to think at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus is getting mad at a leper. yeah. Uh, but so there are a few passages like that, uh, but very, very few.
0: Yeah. So being on a translation team, I'm just kind of curious of like how much pressure do you feel knowing that your choice of words or the committee's choice of words is going to impact millions of readers reading, you know, you've been on the ESV as well as the NIV, two of the more popular translations. Um, yeah. what, what kind of pressure is that in the job that you're doing?
1: <laughs> well, there's two ways to answer the question. One is absolutely
0: zero. Uh, one of the beauties of the uh, the
1: Committee on Bible Translation with the NIV is that we have no outside pressure. We're a completely independent organization. Biblica owns the NIV. Zonovan and Hodder and Stoughton publish it. But we control the text, and so okay. the, we have zero—you um, know, there's there's nothing compelling us. If, if the if we think the publisher won't like it, we don't even think about that, which is one of the real beauties of the CBT. Okay. On the other hand, it's it's um, it's terrifying hmm. because you realize the impact that one word can have. Because preachers will often preach on one word, or they'll hang a major point on. Right one word we just I was just the other day in class we were looking at uh, the holy spirit ekbalo jesus to the desert and the nlt says compelled because uh, you can't the holy spirit can't cast jesus that's the general translation but can't cast jesus in the desert but one of the students said but compelled sounds like he had legal authority over him and he mm-hmm. goes oh my goodness that is not the right word for ekbalo in that passage Um, But especially on the NIV, what a lot of people don't understand is the the NIV is the base text for everything that Biblica does. And so if they're going to go translate, and they have hundreds of translations that they've sponsored around the world. Um, And if they can find Greek and Hebrew scholars in that language group, they use the NIV. They're translated from the Greek and Hebrew, but they're using the NIV as a guide. If it's a people group where they can't find Greek and Hebrew scholars, then they translate from the NIV. So it's not just the English NIV, but it is it's people in Papua New Guinea that I will never meet until heaven, right. whose Bible based on the work that we're doing. Right. And boy, I tell you, you know, we, we come to a meeting prepared, we we've done our homework. Uh, there's a humility on the group. There's a there's a deference that's paid when when Simon starts talking about the Syriac, we listen to him because Simon knows Syriac better than anyone else in that group. I think. Yeah. Um, so there's a deference to people uh, when we're in Romans, we listen to Doug Mue, but we still make up our own minds because every word is God's word, and it's yeah. it's a, it's a it, it can be scary. So there's, yeah. it, you really can answer two different ways.
0: Yeah. And I, I think that's the second answer that, that where I, I take my very limited Greek training that I did in seminary and I, and I pretty much stay far away from the Greek now because of it. It's like, look, why do I think that I can just do a simple word study and I can come to a better understanding of what that word means. Yeah. And maybe the, the people like you that are way smarter than I am, uh, who's really put time and effort into understanding how to translate that better into English word than what I might think I get based on a 15 minute yeah word study. Um, now looking at these different translations as well, um, the NIV is, is done. The ESV is done. Um, so, so what does it look like to be on a translation committee? Uh, now that it's like done, like, are you like updating? Are you going back? How can we <laughs> say this better? Like, what does the continued work look like? Um, with kind of the, the Greek is kind of set in a sense, it sounds like. And yeah. so what, what are you working on?
1: Well, first of all, the NIV is not set. And that's, it's the only translation that from day one was committed to being constantly updated. Uh, that is, that's part of the DNA of the NIV. And, you know, the NASB just came out with an update. Uh, RSV was updated, the NRSV, ESV has done some updates. The CSB was just updated from the Holman Christian well, a while back. So uh, they are doing it. The NIV is the only one we meet every single summer, last week in June. Uh, and we are, we are constantly looking at stuff. Sometimes it's because uh, we, we'll, we will have learned something from archaeology or someone will have written a really good article that really made us stop and think. Uh, so those things all play into it. But right now in the NIV, it's language. Uh, English language is moving so fast. And it's not just the, the gender language has done moved. <laughs> uh yeah. so that's thankfully we don't have to deal with that but uh you know the subjunctive is going out of case uh, out of use uh who is being used instead of whom uh the role of contractions I mean English is just you know for a long time the King James kind of uh, like Luther did in German uh, the King James held the uh, the evolution of language it, it kept it from changing too much and it now is just... It's, the language is exploding. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, you the story I love to tell is Daryl Bach was, uh, when he became a Christian, he was, he was reading the NASB and, but he reads, and that's what he memorized out of that. Da- Daryl's Dar- 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 Dar a professor at Dallas Seminary, And, um, but he reads the net Bible now. And he was down here in the Portland area doing a pastor's conference and he was, talking about John and John the Baptist and Jesus. And then he lapsed into memory and he said, you know, I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong on his sandal. And, you know, I mean, what's that? When was the NASB? That was just like 20 years ago, 25 years ago. And I, I, I went to him afterwards and I said, Daryl, I truly hope that you don't untie anyone's thong. <laughs> he, just, he went, Oh, did I say that? But I mean, there's right. a, there's a word that's totally changed in not too long of a time yeah. and a, he just needs to update his memory verses. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. That makes the sense. language is changing.
0: Yeah, that's true. That's very true. Now that leads me into one of the questions I, I think I had for you. Maybe the, uh, the change that I saw is, um, Luke chapter 7 the birth of Jesus right it's it's so common for us to go to a christmas show we're about to go to all these christmas pageants and everything if if all those are allowed and and uh and Mary and Joseph are going to walk up to an inn and they're going to ask the innkeeper yeah. if there's room and the innkeeper's going to say sorry there's no room and then point Mary and Joseph to some sort of stable or cave or something in which they're going to go into and, and you mm-hmm. and you see in the ESV other translations it, it it's translated there's no room in the inn uh, when i took my new testament class yeah. i was told like that's not the right translation even in the ESV, there's a footnote that says a better translation is guest room, uh, that it's the same Greek word that was used as the upper room. And Jesus had the Passover in the upper room with his disciples. And we actually believe it was a relative's house. And in fact, his archaeological evidence shows us that there's no inn uh, in Bethlehem. Uh, And so uh, I just recently looked and I realized the NIV, and I don't know when the change happened, but the NIV now has guest room. There's no the guest room is not available versus there's no room in the inn. So would this be one of those changes where you're saying the NIV is updating <laughs> versus the ESV is sticking with in, even though it may not be the best word to use in that verse?
1: <laughs> yeah, you're right. I, I had, I had forgotten that the NIV has guest room. <laughs> um, it's a hard question to answer. Uh, just, I've, you know, we're, we're there. I have no gag order. Um, other than I can't tell you what people on the CBT voted for uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> on a verse by verse. Um, but it's I want to, I'm, I'm trying to think of how to answer this question. T- tradition plays a strong role in Bible translation. Uh, there's deference given to the King James. Uh, that's why you know the the seventeen verses that were added to the Byzantine text type that got into the King James um, that the biblical authors never wrote there how's that for throwing out <laughs> a controversial thing <laughs> yeah. they uh, um you know they're all everyone is footnoted in the niv so th- those verses are all there well why do that well it's not a deference to the to the king james uh, and and people's expectations because it just feels weird to john well i thought an angel came down and stirred up the water so that that's part of it and part of it too is just understanding that when you start fooling around with some of these verses uh, you're fooling around with people's favorite verses. Uh, my wife loves nativity scenes, and we have a plethora of nativity scenes. <laughs> Three meagles. I can't say that word without laughing. <laughs> uh, we have a plethora of uh, not piñatas, but of uh, nativity <laughs> scenes. Well, we know very well that the wise men weren't there with the shepherds, right? But you you start you start fooling with that, and you better be really, really sure. That you're you got it right, uh, and so I, my guest here is that, again the NIV doesn't feel the pressure for that. Um, it was a guest room. That's that's there weren't inns that people had an extra room and it's kind of like basically Airbnbs, right? Uh, just just to out the extra rooms. But uh, I, one of the things I was disappointed in was in the when the CSB came out, they had changed the feeding trough back to a manger. Well, it's a feeding trough. Well, what's a manger? I don't know what a manger is. I don't ever talk about a manger. I don't have a manger. I've never seen a manger. I know what a feeding trough is. I've yeah. got those. I feed deer up at the cabin. I build a feeding trough. You know, it's, <laughs> so it's kinda like I would like to ask Tom Shrine, who's the head of that revision committee, why they changed that. Uh, possibly pressure, I don't know. Yeah. But you, you have to be you have to be careful when you start fooling around with people's favorite images and favorite, um, nativity scenes. Yeah. But be that as may, it's still God's word. It's not the publisher's word. And again, the NIV is totally free. And so I'm really glad we have guest room because that's exactly what it was.
0: Yeah. So is there, is there an aspect of that, um, to, um, kind of the same issue with like the long ending of Mark, uh, the woman caught in adultery in John yeah. chapter seven, eight of like, all right, we, we footnote it, we let you know, but we're not just going to pull it out and delete it from the Bibles. Cause then you might have kind of uproar of, of what you see with, right. in the King James only post of like, right. these verses are missing. We're taking out of the word of God rather than doing the study of like, okay, why have yeah. the newer translations taken this out? Similar.
1: I, I actually suggested they both would become footnotes in the NIV. And I lost the vote.
0: Okay,
1: <laughs> that'd be the longest footnote in the world, yeah. Bill. Um, I said, "Well, we footnote all the other verses that were added, but again, it was it was too long." But you know, yeah. every translation does something to say, "Hey, these things don't belong." There's lines above and below it. It's a different size font, or it's italicized, or something. So, on those two, they're just those passages are so long that it's hard to footnote. Them. But you know, the first John five passage on the Trinity is footnoted and uh, John five, four with the angels stirring up the water is footnoted. So I just think, especially for those of us that were raised in the church and are, are used to reading. Uh, well, I, I was raised on the RSV, but you know, a lot of people was raised on the King James. You, you don't want them, you want them to understand that we just didn't remove things willy nilly.
0: Yeah. Now, um probably a question that you've never gotten is a Bible translator, um, is kind of what are the differences between translations? Um, and (laughs) now I'm not going to go directly into that. Um, but I am kind of curious, as you mentioned, you know, these translation committees, and I'm just kind of curious if you have any, any thoughts, uh, full support reservations on single person translation versus committee translation.
1: Well, my mom became a, re- a Christian reading J.B. Phillips. So I, I'm not going to badmouth single translator versions of the Bible. Um, J.B. Phillips' translation, paraphrase, whatever you want to call it, is is really, really good. Um, Kenneth Taylor never really intended his notes to his children to be viewed as a Bible, uh, as I'm told. And, uh, and I was glad to see when the revisions of the NLT came out that they fixed some of those problems. But... Um, As a general rule, I I would not read single translator translations. I know there's some that are out there. But we're all idiosyncratic, and we all don't know everything. And I am amazed at the information that my colleagues pull out that I was completely unaware of that really does affect my understanding of the meaning of the passage. So... Uh, yeah, I would. You know, it's it's kind of fun to read some of these, especially JB Phillips. But yeah. it's it's not thing you're gonna you can't study from it. And uh, you know, some of these other ones like the Passion, it's just it's just making up stuff wholesale. Hmm. It's just not there yeah. in the Greek or the Hebrew. Yeah. So, but and, and people understand that we're idiosyncratic. We're limited in our knowledge. Um, I could never make an evaluative judgment. On a Hebrew versus Septuagintal plus Syriac plus Latin translation of some verse in the Old Testament, I can't do that. But there are people in the committee that can because that's their specialty.
0: Yeah, so
1: you want committees?
0: Yeah. So okay. So there's a there's a an issue I brought up at the very beginning. I think it's a huge issue that, that a lot of my students have, or some of my students have heard about, um, and so I want to make sure I get in And then I'll try to get into some of the questions that came in in the live chat. Uh, but this this documentary is coming out. Uh, it either has come out or is coming out soon, yeah. uh, called 1946: The MisTranslation That Shifted a Culture. And so what this ar- documentary, in short, argues is that in First Corinthians chapter six, where Paul is writing the list of yeah. things and says, you know, uh, adulterers and 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 uh, drunkards and all liars and whatever, and homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, they argue that the Greek word "arsenokoitai," if I'm saying that correctly, uh, should not have been translated mm-hmm. as homosexual. Uh, but the fact that the RSV added that in 1946 has led an entire generation astray to think that homosexuality is a sin, all based on one mistranslation. And so I'm just wondering mm-hmm. if you can kind of speak into this translation of that word in 1 Corinthians chapter 6.
1: Yeah, and the interesting thing is, you told me about that before we started, and I checked. Yeah, yeah the uh, the RSV that I have says sexual perverts, so I don't know why they're saying that. Um, that, and you also have to deal with Romans one. You can't deal with one and without the other. Um, I, two things you have to define this term based on Leviticus, uh, because that's where this these words are going back to, and and Leviticus defines it as as a man. Who lies with a man as he would lie with a woman. So, something to be defined based out of uh, Leviticus. But I will tell you what, what goes on in translation committee meetings, and, and this is positive, and you'll see it in some of these other lists that we wanted to distinguish between, um, to use modern parlance, same sex attraction versus those who carry through with it. Uh, let's take anger, for example. Is, is having a propensity towards anger a sin, or is responding in anger, the sin? I think we'd all agree that we all have propensities in our characters, uh, in, our, in our personalities, whether it's anger or lying or you know whatever be the case. But it's it's when we let that propensity act out, and that's the problem. And so that's why the. Um, Which one was it? Well, the NIV says um, men who have sex with men. And the reason for that is that it's not the same sex attraction that's the issue. It's the acting out of it. Uh, ESV, uh, men who practice homosexuality. uh, CBT, males who have sex with males. Interesting, the NRSV uh, says male prostitutes, sodomites. And I think both of those are um, no, no, I'm sorry. Just sodomites is their translation of the word. Uh, Net Bible has practicing homosexuals. So that that's what they're trying to. They're trying to be sensitive to something that I think is really important that they be sensitive to, and that is that um, that is it's not. We all have uh, chinks in our armor. Uh, is that okay to say? Uh, we we all have personal directions or tendencies that we all have, pride, well, you know, whatever be the case. Uh, but it's not the propensity to pride. It's when you start acting like a proud and arrogant person right. that it's a problem. So th- those are the two things. But I would say, um, first of all, I don't know why they're mentioning the RSV. I'm not aware of the RSV ever having gone through uh, a revision. Maybe I don't NRV, know. I, um...
0: Yeah. Now I'm yeah. questioning myself, well, uh, what exactly what that, translation, but it was not one that was being translated in 1946. Well, that, that's the RSV. Okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, but that's, uh, at least in my version that I have. And I, like I say, I can't, I'm looking for all oh, about this text. Uh, this one is dated 19. This one's dated 1971. Okay. So I'm working with an update of the RSV. So maybe the 46, uh, had the word homosexual and then they changed it to sexual pervert um, but you know this is this is actually an, it, uh, I it? it's it's actually a very easy discussion to have because yeah. Leviticus defines it and Leviticus spells it out um and it's um it's it's just what it's what the word means yeah so um, I think that's helpful yeah I don't yeah yeah. Awesome. But I that's agree. what's going. On, that's what's going on in translation. Not only this word, but of other in sin lists. We're all pretty careful about. It's the acting out of a out of a personality trait that becomes the sin.
0: Yeah. Perfect. Um, all right. We're, we're going to jump into some questions here that came in for you. So let me change this so hopefully you can uh, see the questions a little bit better. So okay. this question from Slam And thank you, Slam says, is biblical Greek and Koine Greek interchangeable as a term? Your test, your textbook says biblical Greek.
1: Yeah, there would be exactly the same thing. Koine Greek, okay. um, biblical Greek, just the the common everyday
0: Greek that was spoken in the first century A.D. Okay. Um, and then do you have any idea as far as the Gospels of which book came first? Uh, could Matthew have been written first? Gospels known as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I know several people mentioned. Uh, so uh, yeah. Matthew versus Mark, do you have any idea on that one?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, for the first thousand years or so, people thought Matthew was the first and Mark was an abridgment. Um, but it's, I think the scholarship is pretty much, I mean, I'm not a Gospels guy. Uh, I had to talk to Craig about that, but it's, I think it's pretty much been accepted that of mark and priority the orders is, is interesting though because matthew is the most jewish and so it's and he starts with the genealogies tying it into the old testament so it's there's no question that mark was the first um that ended up being the first uh, and then you got to get luke close to acts and you've got to separate the synoptics from john so you, you
0: get matthew, you get mark in second place yeah Okay. Uh, Now, as far as the Septuagint, I don't know how much kind of work you've done there, but the question came in here. It said, we'd love to hear your thoughts on the Septuagint, Alexandria of Psalms 4, and how different the verb use is. Really changes the text. Doesn't bother me at all. Interesting. Uh, Any thoughts on that?
1: (laughs) Psalm Psalm 4, did they give you a verse?
0: Uh, No verse here. Just says, Psalm 4, how different the verb use is. Oh,
1: Subtu- interest in the Septuagint is growing, and I think it's a good thing, but it is phenomenally complex because you have, you know, the beginning of the Septuagint in about 250 BC, and so you have the translation of the Pentateuch, and then the rest was done by people who weren't as good um, uh, all the way up until the time of Christ. And then you also have updating of the Septuagint text so something that was translated in 250 may have been updated in 100 um, you also have the question of what Hebrew text were they working from is it a better text than the Masoretic text or is it a different text than the Masoretic you know um, they're they uh, I'm trying to think of their voice goes out to the ends of the earth I mean it's, it's the, the Hebrew is so awkward in that psalm that you, you tend to start looking at, at other sources. But you have, you have evolution in the Hebrew text as well. Uh, we don't know how far back uh, the Masoretic text goes. The Dead Sea Scroll suggests it was pretty settled by the first century B.C., but it's, um, but it's difficult. So you have all these variables. And so every translation that I'm aware of uh, gives deference to the Masoretic text unless it just doesn't make sense. And if you can leave the consonants the same and repoint them, uh, some people are willing to do that. Uh, I know in the NIV that if we felt we ever had to change the consonantal text in preference to the Septuagint, uh, it's always marked. Yeah, uh, we, we, we don't fiddle with the consonants without saying it.
0: Perfect. That's very helpful. And Jima yeah. Joe, thank you so much for sending in that comment. Well, we only have a couple of minutes left here. Again, just want to recommend your book to those who are watching. Uh, but I also would love to just hear a little bit about what you're currently doing as the president of BiblicalTraining.org. Kind of uh, what's going on there at that website and, um, and then yeah. uh, what can people learn there?
1: Well, Biblical Training is committed to moving uh, high-end, high-quality education into the church Around the world for everyone, that's why it's free. And because of the donations from the professors and the donations from our from givers, uh, that's why it's able to be free for everyone. And so we have twenty three hundred hours of lectures from classes and seminars. Our professors are from seventeen different seminaries, and I ended up just the other day fifty one different uh, ministries. Uh, so we have a wide range, but th- the thing that's consistent is that they're all the best. Uh, there, when I go to look for someone, I always pick the first or the acknowledged first or second best. So we wanted something on ensemble, so we go to Walkie. I mean, there's like there was there was no question. You, you go to Walkie, um, and uh, and so it's a but it's a it has three layers. Uh, the foundations is for. Uh, the church in general the the academy is for people who want a college level education and the institute is for those who want a seminary level education and the big thing that we're pushing is please take these classes as a group listen to it on your own get together in small group and process the information because it's in the processing that you really learn but we just wanted to move world-class education into the church where it belongs
0: yeah, well, I appreciate that. And when I mentioned that you were coming on the show, uh, pastor of my church went, oh my goodness, his website, biblicaltraining.org is wonderful. Mm-hmm. And so oh, I, I know Thanks. that you're doing not only a lot of good work in helping us understand scripture and having it readable in the NIV and ESV, uh, but also in the training resources that you're putting out and this new book that you've done. And also uh, your biblical Greek, which maybe you've had this comment before, but when I mentioned a, a uh, an MDiv uh, graduate uh, that you were coming on the show, it's like uh, all of us MDiv students had a love hate relationship with mounts because uh (laughs) it was wonderful but in the amount of greek that we had to take and uh yeah yeah. (laughs) i know i know
1: hey real quickly i I spoke at uh, the tory institute at talbot a while back and i I started by saying i just want you to know that i apologize for all those sleepless nights and broken (laughs) days that you all had they're all laughing and then i said i also want to know that i forgive you for everything you said about me in private (laughs) <laughs> and the whole auditorium was dead quiet and then they realized I was teasing them they started laughing but it's yeah learning a language is hard it's yeah. not natural for most people and it just takes time so
0: well this person was a Talbot graduate and did go to Tori oh. undergraduate Tori honors and undergraduate at Biola so uh, oh, oh, very, uh, good, yeah. very good <laughs> well Dr. Mounts thank you so much for taking yeah. this time and having this conversation with us today
1: well I'm glad for the opportunity thanks
0: all right, everybody, I sure hope that this conversation has encouraged you as much as it did me. Some awesome, great resources here as well as, again, check out uh, this wonderful book. It is in the link to, below if you're watching on YouTube. Uh, and again, as always, there's there's interviews coming up. There's a question of the month at the end of the month or question. Uh, Show where you can send in your questions, a QA show. And I'm trying to just address the concerns, the issues that you have, trying to help you more faithfully, better understand what Christianity teaches, defend it well, and faithfully live it out. So thank you so much for joining me today. And I hope that you have a wonderful rest of your day. And God bless and continue to think deeply about God, Jesus, Christianity, because they are worth thinking about. Thank you, everybody, who came, asked questions, and commented there. Have a blessed rest of your day. Bye, everybody. I'm just-
1: Won't hesitate to follow. Your love will guide my.